not true. Because the way that our minds are wired and the fact about human beings is that we are not designed to do things that are uncomfortable or scary or difficult. Our brains are designed to protect us from those things because our brains are trying to keep us alive. And in order to change, in order to build a business, in order to be the best parent, the best spouse, to do all those things that you know you want to do with your life, with your work, with your dreams, you're going to have to do things that are difficult, uncertain, or scary, which sets up this problem for all of us. You're never going to feel like it. Motivation's garbage. You, you only feel motivated to do the things that are easy, right? What do you think that is? Oh, I know exactly why that is. Because I, I, I've studied this so much because for me, one of the hardest things to figure out was why is it so hard to do the little things that would improve my life? Hi, listeners. We appreciate you tuning in again. This episode is powered by Moxie Reality, our virtual reality and augmented reality company that helps businesses develop and implement advanced technology solutions into the workflow. We've had a busy month finishing up our October. There were several events that we were at. New York Virtual Reality Expo, Seed Scholars, Human Hackathon, and MIT's Media Lab, which is in Boston. Starting off our November, we want to thank every last listener for tuning in, and we do appreciate your support. Please take a minute to give us a five-star review and share if you like the content that you are listening to. Now, if you do have any questions, email us at info at moxie-sports.com or check our website at www.moxie-sports.com. Enjoy this episode. On our next episode, we will be featured Kathy Hackle, now HTC's evangelist and world-renowned virtual reality and augmented reality advocate. Charlie Fink, who we're going to have on this episode, is amazing, very detailed individual, talks a lot about virtual reality and augmented reality. And we want to say thank you, everyone, and we really, really appreciate you. Enjoy. And we are back with another episode of Empower. Here we talk to entrepreneurs, social impact fellows, thought leaders, culinary specialists, technology gurus, investors, multimillionaires, and activists about how they got to where they are and what they're doing to change the world. Here we're going to take a deep dive with Charlie Fink and ask questions on how and why and he got to where he is. So first, I kind of want to you know just say thank you for being here, Charlie, taking the time out to meet with me and, and to really, really take a deep dive into virtual reality and augmented reality, something that a lot of individuals are talking a lot about, you know, ever since the big accolades of Facebook and everything that's going on in the space, a lot of people have been asking me questions and asking questions about where virtual reality is going. Is it here? Is it not here? Where is AR? So I kind of really wanted to sit down with an expert about what they're doing, how they're doing it, who are the big players in the spaces, and, and what we can look at in the future. So right here we have Charlie Fink, who is the writer and editor for Forbes. Um, he considers himself a futurist, which I love. Um, we we all should consider ourselves futurists. And I, I really, he's an editor for on Medium. He writes a lot of different articles. He's a, one of the top writers for virtual reality technology and the VR voice. Charlie Fink, everybody. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Happy thank, to be here. <laughs> thank you so much. So I kind of want to just really deep dive and dive right into it. Get a little bit about your background now. I mean, just talk a little bit about where you grew up and, you know. Well, I uh, grew up in New York, and, and I went to uh, graduate school in Chicago at the Art Institute of Chicago, where I studied film. And like all good New Yorkers, I kept moving west and uh, got a job at Disney as a junior executive in 1986 and helped remake the animation division. Um, I left Disney in 1993 to become chief operating officer and director of an early VR startup. It was v, uh, LBVR uh, called Battletech and uh, later Virtual World. And we offered multiple vehicle-based multiplayer simulations. So it was early VR, but it was based on flight sim technology. Uh, and uh, after that, I went to a little company called AOL, uh, where I spent four years as its senior vice president of original content, building some of the uh, 
first websites. Wow. Uh, in fact, we had the first dating site, Love at AOL, <laughs> uh, which was later sold to Match.com when AOL exited the content business before re-entering the content business. But by then, I had left the company, and I started another company, uh, which was an email marketing platform. We were purchased by American Greetings in Cleveland. I was the president of their dot-com division and took it from free to fee, as we say. Like um, when I left there in 2004, I started to focus on doing more theater. I've produced over uh, and get back to my roots in entertainment, essentially. And of course, I, I wasn't ready to sort of throw myself into movie making as an independent producer, and I gravitated toward theater because theater is local. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, theater is a rather small pond. And it, theater has been great for me. I've, you know, produced over 30 readings, workshops, festival productions, and off-Broadway shows. Uh, most recently, Baghdadi was playing at St. Luke's Theater in the Theater District, uh, closed uh, July 8th. And I started to get back into writing uh, about two and a half years ago, and... I wanted to originally write a book about my experiences at Disney. And I asked Gary Vaynerchuk, who's a friend of mine, mm. and, uh, and, and a great inspiration to me, yeah. and should be for everybody. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's a bit of a self-help guru. So yeah. I said, you know, how do you write a book, really, just like 10,000 feet, you know, what is required? And he said, well, how's your blog going? Mm. I said, oh, well, I don't really have a blog. He goes, if you don't have a blog, why do you think you can write a book? Mm. <laughs> and so I started to, to, to blog about it, and um, the, the blog was pop popular. People liked it. I got a lot of positive reinforcement. I wasn't able to execute my idea about a book on Disney just because Disney owns all the artwork, and the artwork yeah. I have is all pirated, and so I you know, need to um, get their cooperation, and they're really not interested in Charlie's memoir. Uh, and I don't want to write the official Disney version. Of course. Uh, so, so I moved on. I started writing about social media because several of my startups were in the social media space. Those were my unsuccessful startups. <laughs> and I felt that the social media space was a very crowded space with a lot of thought leadership and a lot of experts. It's, it's As I said, it's very, very crowded. It's very, very diverse. Almost everything is marketed via social media. So I didn't feel like my voice would add much to that conversation. And at the suggestion of a friend, um, I started to relook into virtual reality technology. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered was one of the greatest business stories of our century. Think about it. It's the largest companies in the world. Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars are at stake. Mm -hmm. We are talking about the future of mankind and the future of communications. Uh, nobody knows how this story is going to end. Uh, there's some known knowns, some known unknowns, uh, like uh, Magic Leap. Yes. But uh, there may also be a Google out there that we don't even know about. So it's a great story. And of course, there are larger-than-life characters and twists and turns. Something is happening, it seems, every week or every month. AR Kit was yeah. released yesterday. I downloaded it yeah. uh, this morning. Uh, if I wasn't so busy today, I, I'd be playing with Hologrid Monster right now. <laughs> uh, so I'm very excited about that. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write about it. So it's like interferes with my writing on my book. Yeah. to have all these urgent things happening mm -hmm. that really I should write yeah. about and talk about. Yeah. And I think what makes my writing interesting and unique is that I have a filter of 35 years in the media and technology business. Exactly. So that informs a lot of my opinions. Yeah. I'm also a columnist. I'm not a reporter, and I emphasize this to people that I talk to. I get to talk to everyone. I have tremendous access, and I'll tell you why. Because I don't write negative stories. If, if somebody came to me and said, hey, there's a sex scandal at Upload VR, or there's a sexual harassment thing at Google, I'd send them to a real reporter. I don't benefit from writing those mm -hmm. stories, yeah. and it will limit my access, Correct. and it will um, put people on their guard. Yeah. I, I let a lot of my subjects read um, 
the articles about them before I publish them. Partly because, you know, I'm, I'm, I take longhand notes. I'm old school. I'm not recording this stuff. So when I make up quotes for people, I want them to feel comfortable that they feel smart. And nine out of ten people love it. They're great. And there's always that one person who's like, I would say this, not that. So, and great. I'm happy. I want them to be happy. That's my whole thesis of um, getting access. So what I do is I collect these stories or aspects of the story um, and I try and see it through my filter. Mm. Um, you know, which is partly a business filter, it's partly an artistic filter, it's partly a marketing filter and try and understand what, what it does for us as consumers, what it does as, as technology and try and explain that so regular people can understand it. And then um, evaluate its position in the ecosystem and what it says about the evolution of the medium. Mm. So that it really isn't so much about the companies, but more about the medium itself and how it's evolving. Yeah, exactly. And one particular thing you said there that really is a big part of, a big part that I got in as well is the connecting piece, right? Like the social collaboration of VR is going to be, I feel, very evident in the future when it comes to virtual reality and in some way the, the social aspect in some, in some form. I, I recently did volumetric. Mm -hmm. uh, a, I had a volumetric uh, meeting in VR. I don't think the early applications of social oh, yeah. VR that we see where you're a propeller head and we're yeah. looking at a video together there's somebody on Skype on a video and you and I are with the Skype person. I don't think that's better than what I do on my mm -hmm. laptop. I mean, technology succeeds when it makes what we're already doing better, faster, and cheaper. Correct. And I don't see that particular application making it better. That goes back to what we were saying before you yeah. started recording, right? Why does it have to be VR? Yeah. So I, I those it didn't surprise me when all space VR uh, went out of business because the thing they were doing wasn't working, mm. and it wasn't because they weren't smart guys. It's because nobody knows what's going to work. Exactly. Particularly in social VR. So, so I have been looking a lot at telepresence, and I'm sort of in the middle of um, uh, gathering uh, information on it. Again, as I said before we started talking, people ask me how long does it take to write an article. Yeah. And, and the answer is three hours or 30 days, right? Because I've been working on telepresence and I'm spending five to ten hours a week on it for, you know, four or five weeks before I spend the three hours actually writing the story. Exactly. It takes, And so, I mean, getting, getting to making sure, I wanted to know what are some of the hopes that, and I, we've you kind of talked a little bit about this already, bits and pieces of it. What are some of the hopes of the future? that you believe in, in either VR or AR, what can they fix? What problems do you feel that they're going to be able to fix? And, or do you believe that it'll fix anything? Well, uh, AR and VR are cousins, mm -hmm. or let's call them tributaries of the same immersive, augmentive world. Mm -hmm. But they're not the same thing. And as they slowly mature the differences are becoming more profound. Exactly. Now, having said that, I do not believe that I am going to have on my desktop an array of head-worn devices. I'm going to have one device. It's going to do inside-out tracking as well as have outward-facing cameras that are high-definition, depth-sensing, stereoscopic cameras. And it will combine reality and, and the digital yeah. uh, reality or, or they, it will combine physical reality, which has been digitized, with digital yeah. information seamlessly in real time. Yeah. And it will also do fully occluded virtual reality. Um, and so I believe there are two devices. So when I say they're different tributaries, uh, when you're doing an AR application, it's going to be very different than doing a VR application, even though ultimately you may use most or some of the same equipment to do it. Yeah. So, but in the meantime, it's two separate devices are required. Now, there will be, I do think it is inevitable that it, people ask me to explain AR Kit, and I, I think I should do it here for a second, uh, yeah, and I, I can gonna, come back, yeah, okay? Please. What, what AR Kit allows, or, or AR 
allows the phone to do is to dimensionalize data. It has something, uh, uh, it has uh, enhanced uh, localization uh, technology that makes your phone accurate to three feet instead of, I think today, it's three yards. It is significant if, you, if the camera is your interface. So the difference really is that right now you're time shifting between your lap and physical reality. Mm -hmm. And like your computer, your uh, smartphone or your handheld computer has apps. The apps is the interface. Mm -hmm. Now, inside of those apps, um, many of them will, will now make the interface the camera so that um, I can stand on the corner of 42nd Street and 9th Avenue and hold up my phone and LinkedIn will show me where my friends work. Hmm. Facebook will show me if any of my friends have left messages or tags on any of the stores or restaurants on this block. Um, augmented reality ultimately will take multiple forms like with cars and heads-up displays. But more than that, I think we're going to see things like watching football games using tabletop AR, mm. in which we're like gods sitting there looking down on the football players, running these little volumetric 3D football players running around on the table. And wouldn't that be a great fun way to watch a game? And wouldn't we go to a you know special sports bar to do that? So all that is... Yeah. you know, going to happen in the next 10 years. One particular the, thing... You know, if you're walking... So the only worse form factor than shifting between physical reality and your lap is having to hold your hand up in the air and look through the camera. And that's why I say head-mounted displays ultimately are a bit inevitable because of that. Yeah. But the camera does need to be the interface. That's why I said the ultimate combined device will yeah. have outward-facing exactly. cameras. And, and I hear, like, I know that a lot of the individuals that are listening, they're entrepreneurs, you know, they're tech-savvy individuals. Some of them have no idea what virtual reality, augmented reality is. One thing you said particularly very compelling was VR is trying to replace the world digitally and AR is trying to enhance the world digitally, right. which I found very compelling. And I thought about that, and I was like, it's, very, it's a very simple, true fact to what VR and AR is. So, I mean, for individuals that are listening, um, what are some ways that you think marketing will help in some ways? Maybe for bigger companies or maybe some smaller well, companies. I would look at marketing problems now having an additional solution. Got it. I would not say that augmented reality is like, well, so how does the internet change it? You know, how is, you know, so... Advertising and marketing has always been very fast to adopt new technologies, partly because of, the, of its novelty factor. Um, but it's going to be expressed in many ways, as I said, through tabletop um, mm -hmm. AR, for example. Exactly. Um, you know, there's a company that makes floating holograms that, that are projected in a retail environment. So you could be in a mall and there'd be a giant McDonald's hamburger rotating above your head. It's like freaking Blade Runner. Yeah. So, so I, I think there are... Excuse me. Um, I, I think there are a lot of uh, situations where AR might make make might be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. But people say to me, I'm not sure what the entrepreneurial opportunities are in AR yet. Okay. I'm sure they're there. I'm sure that somebody is going to figure out Uber for uh, you know because Uber and localization and mapping is what makes Uber possible, right? So somebody will figure out Uber for exactly. AR and make a billion dollars. Um, but if you ask me sitting here today, who's going to benefit from AR? The guys who are already winning. It's going to take Facebook and make it better. It's going to take LinkedIn and make it better. It's going to make Apple Maps way better. So it's the things we're already doing that it's going to make better. And so uh, will it make mobile games better? Sure. Great. They'll make it much better. And there are people who like mobile games and they'll like AR games or mobile games that are enhanced with AR. You know, I mean, I look forward to those, you know, crazy little games like, you know, uh, uh, I saw the one on, you uh, know, the Apple Strike you know, or yeah. any of those. I mean, that's going to be a guess for people who like to play games. Exactly. Exactly. So if you're not playing games now, chances are you're not going to start playing games just because they're enhanced with AR. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some uh, obvious ones, the design and architecture apps, so put a picture on your wall, uh, put a 
your dining room table in. Uh, you know, those, uh, those, all those apps will, again, uh, it, it, specifically in areas of, like, design and architecture will make near-term yeah. near term impacts. Why would you ever build a little model again when your clients can walk around inside of the exactly. CAD drawing? Exactly, which is true. So um, I think that those are businesses that will be impacted soon. Um, yeah. you know, way before we really see consumer products. But AR on the phone will make those apps better. And Snapchat is going to be, it, it's really going to help Snapchat. Mm. You know, Definitely. Be, you know, so, so because it allows you, you know, AR allows you to put uh, a digital character, for example, and anchor them properly into a room so that they have more, a, a more um, a compelling presence. Uh, and then, of course, you can, you know, fight with the, uh, you know, with the digital character, save it, post it to social media. So those kinds yeah. of fun throwaway up. applications yeah. are... That's like hologram or hollow... Uh, right, it's uh, called um, Holo. Holo. H-O-L-O. 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 Yeah, Holo. Um, I've seen, I've seen, we've, we've all seen a H-O-L-O lot of H-O-L-O is a great, yeah. simple, yeah. straightforward yeah. application of it. And I like their business model where they get the Spider-Man guys to partner with them. So yeah. that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, and uh, but you know Facebook is going to do that. Yep. Magnolia will be out of business and or or bought or or, or a you know footnote. Uh, so that's the problem with what Holo is doing is that Snapchat is going to do it much better. Exactly. Um, due respect to them because I like yep. those guys at A and I. I think they're extremely smart guys who are doing pioneering things. But in this particular instance, you know the whole app is only one part of their much larger um, holographic capture business. Yep. Uh, but I find it hard to believe that they're going to have yeah. once uh, again, you know, and, and the beauty of being Snapchat and the beauty of being Instagram is you can take your sweet time about it. Yeah. You know, your giant audience is going to be even bigger a month yeah. from now. And um, so, but, you know, look, I mean, you know, the three-dimensionalization of, of products um, using panning and, and you yeah. know, finger turning and stuff has, has been, be been on there for a long time and it'll get better. But, it's not going to change the world. Those, you know, it's just going to make what we're doing a little bit better and a little bit more fun. And uh, as I said, as the camera starts to be used by more and more apps, uh, it will become gradually more impactful. Yeah, and uh, one particular thing I know a lot of individuals, that at least the consumer. But you know, again, I want to say everybody overestimates the near term yeah. and underestimates. Yes the long term. So I, I really believe that, and that's why I spend a lot of my time both debunking the near term, but speaking very optimistically mm. about the future, because I think that particularly with VR, but also with AR, and in particular with head-mounted displays, um, this is like the personal computer was in 1993 before the internet. So very few people before the internet and before email and instant messaging thought that they needed to have a computer at home. They, if they had one, it was for kids, and the kids used it for games and homework sometimes. Um, but because you bought local programs like the encyclopedia or, or whatever on CD-ROM. Uh, but you weren't connected to the internet. You didn't use it a lot. Everybody in the family shared it. It was really kind of a, an expensive, you know, productivity $3, tool. $3,000. Yeah, three, right. They did with a, you know, 9,600-baud modem. Yeah. And... As online services became popularized, as people used them more at work and started to see the benefit of high speed and shopping and instant messaging, they felt like they had to have those computers. This is the same thing because th that was a case of people learning to use a tool that never existed. Right? Because in, you know, because I lived through that, right? I graduated from graduate school in 1983. So they were just, we were just seeing the first, you know, Mac 2s around. And there was no sense that this, could, this thing was going to change everything. Now, in 1993, some of us who were early users of the, of the Internet, as I was in my capacity as a chief executive of a virtual reality company, you know, we won cool site of the year in 1993. <laughs> 93, <laughs> in, I was like, like, six. In, in 1993. So... Uh, I think the head-mounted display yeah. is going to follow the personal computer, which really took 15 years, yeah. and and it changed everything. Mm. And I think you know, whereas the cell phone, um, 
you know, changed almost instantly. But this is a case of taking something we're already doing. We all already had phones, and now they're much better. Yeah. Um, so that's easy. Getting people to wear head-mounted displays, it's a little bit like selling, um, selling Coke to people who have never heard about soda. Um, and so I think it's going to take a while. Yeah. I think there will be first adopters. There's much more equipment around. Uh, you know, Microsoft uh, Windows uh, 10MR could be very impactful. Uh, major manufacturers are making headsets now. They're better. They're lighter. So all, all of that is, is yeah. going to help popularize it. Yeah. But it is not going to look like the phone. It is going to look like a personal computer in 1993. Mm -hmm. Now, there may be an inflection point, which is similar to email or, or uh, internet connectivity and shopping. Um, you know, so that would create some kind of a hockey stick yeah. effect. But otherwise, you know, before the internet, before 1995, you know, uh, there was a very, very slow build in personal computer ownership. And as you point out, Mike, partly because of the price. Yeah. But then when it hit the inflection point in the hockey stick, prices came down as more and more units were purchased, more low-price competitors uh, like Gateway entered the market. Uh, and that is what's happening here now. Yeah, absolutely. That said, I don't know what that killer application is. I don't know where that inflection point is. No one does. Yeah. Um, but I think head-mounted displays is a toughie. And that's good. I think that's a toughie, really, because I think it's just so weird and so not something that people do <laughs> that unless people start using it at work and at school and it starts to be part of a normal part of life, will it even occur to them to spend more time there? Yeah. But these, that will happen. Yeah. You know, will. that absolutely will happen. I don't think it's going to happen in 2018. I don't think the Lenovo Star Wars headset is going to be very impactful in the overall story of VR. I think it could be a very fun toy that Lenovo sells a lot of this Christmas, but what would a lot be? A million? You know, because there are 500 million, um, you know, Different Apple adapt, yeah. uh, uh, phones out there. 500, 500 million um, Microsoft uh, laptops running Windows. Uh, so you're talking about an, an inconceivably large install base versus something that is really kind of a novelty. Yeah. And I mean, how much support is that novelty going to have? And how many developers are really going to develop software for a thing that sold a million units? I mean, that's the problem that Vive and Oculus have right now. And that's why they pay developers. You want Doom? Pony up. Yeah, exactly. And that's good because we go right back into... The next question, which is about head-mounted displays, uh, head-mounted displays, we see a lot. At least the consumers see a lot um, of different from HTC, Oculus, now Vive Focus, which is the portable um, Vive it's, that we it's, see. It's going to be like the Pico Goblin, which is mm -hmm. based on the Snapdragon 935 chip, and that is a wearable Android. The o uh, Osterhack Group uh, R8 which is going to market in China this fall, uh, also uses that technology. It's been overhyped. Got it. It is a cool running graphics processing chip that has been enhanced with some Google programming called Tango, an AR core. Um, so it is essentially the equivalent of, of um, AR kit that Apple has integrated. And um, within a lot of those head-mounted displays from Samsung Gear, HoloLens, or you know Daydream, all these head-mounted displays, which one out of all of these would you lean towards? Or maybe, I don't know if you've tried all of them, maybe you have. And, and I have a personal bias toward the Vive because it was my first one. <laughs> I like the Rift. Uh, I can't wear my glasses as comfortably with the Rift. Got it. So I have a bias toward Vive. I think all these headsets are fine. I, the problem is not the headsets. The headsets are actually pretty stupid and don't break that much. Mm -hmm. The problem is your high-end gaming computer. First of all, there aren't that many of them. Second of all, people like ASUS and MSI configure them for PC games. They have high security on them. You have to undo all of that stuff before you can run VR applications. Uh, it is not something... You know, you see consumers at Best Buy with all the crap in the box taking it all back. Yeah. 
because it's too, steam is annoying. There, uh, the companies are trying to solve this. I mean, Oculus yeah. and, and Vive are not, you know, stupid. They know what's happening. Uh, so uh, it is hard to get it set up and yeah. get it going. Uh, my, my, I think 2018 is going to bring us some new headsets. Um, that's going to be interesting. I think the headsets being made, I think there are five manufacturers making headsets in the $300 to $400 range for Windows 10 MR, which I just demoed, the Asus and the HP, and the Dell. And uh, I, I have to say that the, um, the HP one was nice. It was really light. The, the Lenovo one is nice, very light, flips up. It's, it's everything. Now, they don't, the head... Sets are not as advanced as the Vive. You know, the Vive yeah, has that new headset that you kind of have to have. I mean, Vive has, you know, it has integrated um, headphones, which the Vive has needed since the beginning. Um, and, uh, and you don't have any of that with Windows MR10. It's not that baked yet. But they will have a store open. Uh, the HoloLens is a business device that costs $3,000. Microsoft is not a, a, a hardware company. There are a lot of developers working with it. It was a pretty amazing early proof of concept, but the field of view is at, at 50 degrees is a very, very limited field of view. Mm. And, and it's weird. You know, and Reggie Watts says you're like wearing a night helmet. You're trying to find the slit to look at. So I've seen some pretty amazing things with the HoloLens. It was a great first demonstration. It still is in terms of head-worn, uh, untethered uh, AR devices that you can buy today, uh, one of the best things out there. Uh, all of these things are uh, the um, Meta 2, uh, which is another competitor that's seeking to do uh, a competitor, I would say, to the HoloLens. They have a very narrow field of view, which would be very weird for consumers. I mean, you can use it at work. It's not that weird when you get used to it, but it's not really yeah. for consumers. It's not super plug-and-play. In general, I think the plug-and-play is a really big deal. So now let's go back to the standalones that we talked about that are powered by Computers. The, uh, the enhanced Android chip from Qualcomm. We shall see. I just tried one. It's called the Pico Goblin. Um, it ain't that great. I think it's I, a I toy. saw that. I think I saw that. It's a, white. it's a toy. It ain't that great. The version I got was buggy. I'm sure there will ha have less bugs when it gets to consumers at Christmas. It's a $200 thing, uh, and it does one thing. Uh, I thought it was just okay. I, I think it's a little bit like the Samsung Gear VR. People mm -hmm. buy it. They try it. It's on the shelf. They don't think about doing anything. Right? Most of the six or seven million... Gear VRs are, are not good news. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Rift and the, the the owner satisfaction with Rift and Vive is very very high. So mm -hmm. if you can get through it and you're savvy enough, you get a tremendous home entertainment product. But it's a little temperamental and it requires patience and downloads get corrupted and there's a lot of software conflicts and it's just so uh, uh, because of my experience with the Goblin, I'm a little bit gun-shy when it comes to the standalones that Lenovo and HTC are making for the Google Daydream. Right? Yeah. Google Daydream is only compatible with the Pixel phone, so, yeah. so they essentially are not out there. And this will potentially change that. That said, again, how many are they really going to sell? The things are going to cost four or $500. And I'm concerned, again, based on seeing one product, I'm just concerned that it won't be that great. And uh, so, I mean, getting into... But, like, but one thing we haven't talked about is PlayStation VR. Yeah, PlayStation, which is that's, it's another... Which is, which is... I like the PlayStation VR. Um, I think they have a lot of software problems. Again, it has nothing to do with the head-mounted display. The problem is every... With few exceptions, every PlayStation, I don't own one, so I've only done it about half a dozen times. But, but my problem is that I never understand why I'm in VR. I 
never look behind me. I'm never going anywhere. Why is this VR? Mm. You know, why wouldn't it be better just to do this on PlayStation? Which, again, has very high owner satisfaction. So I think the PlayStation has a bit of a software problem right now. Um, but I think that their install base gives them a huge advantage, and they should continue to increase the penetration that they have. I mean, they're million something now. You know, they could easily after Christmas be at you know one worldwide, maybe two million. So I, I think that there's a lot of promise uh, being shown, even with these relatively low sales numbers. Uh, but the thing that's really striking is the owner satisfaction, because it is so hard to get it to work. But when people get it to work, they really like it a lot. And uh, I think that's terribly interesting. And so, I mean, as we're like kind of piecing together different industries from education to uh, like there's a big part of storytelling as well when it comes to VR. Where do you think some of the sweet spots are? And I mean, for people that are listening that might be in education or they might be in storytelling or they might be. Well, let's, 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 let's take those, you know, separately. We were talking a few minutes ago yeah. about fitness. Fitness is, be, you know, for example, uh, you know, I have a friend who is a, you know, insanely like Lance Armstrong-ish, you know, bike rider. And, uh, you know, he has in the winter months his bike up on a rack and mounted in front of the rack is, you know, a, you know, 50-inch TV. And he runs races that are synced up with his bike. And there are other simulated riders and... So why does he need a head-mounted display to have that experience? So that's my concern. I think I look at the Wii and I say, oh, there is a way to get a workout in, in VR. I just uh, don't think the fitness applications specifically are the ones to do that, right? Ironically, you may get the most fitness out of... Um, Peloton. Uh, out, of, out of, you know... Um, the Wii. Uh, uh, what's Fruit Ninja. Okay. So Fruit Ninja is really a freaking workout. You start sweating doing Fruit Ninja. So um, I think that uh, I think that that's uh, that's the way to get a workout, yeah. uh, not to do the you know virtual physical trainer. Yeah. The uh, but but I mean now with regard to uh, education, uh, this is an area where lots of areas of education will be better with VR. Uh, biology, chemistry, uh, all of the STEM uh, disciplines, uh, history, travel. There are lots of applications, but there are issues, right? Because you've got 30 kids in a class. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we'll see great education applications. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I think VR and surgery and medical education. I, I mean, it's happening now. Yeah. Uh, architecture, architecture education, these things will... VR and AR will be very important to those professions very soon, if not right now. Mm. And this tends to happen as it did with the computer. It happens first in enterprise because to an enterprise, a $3,000 computer is not impactful the way it is on a family. Exactly. So that's why we saw personal computers so early uh, in businesses when they had nothing whatever to do with the Internet. Um, yeah. But there was a limit because they couldn't couldn't get them in the home, uh, and we could, couldn't get consumers interested because they didn't do enough unique things, uh, and it didn't take what they were doing already and make it better, cheaper, and faster. It just took what they were doing at work and allowed them to do work at home. And who wants to do that? <laughs> so you know, it was a homework tool that was um, underutilized uh, because uh, because it could only do. Things and you had to have the CD-ROM that had to, you know, it, it wasn't that simple. Yeah, and so I mean, looking at some numbers, uh, so we're talking about virtual reality, we're talking about augmented reality, we're talking about maybe investments and investors. I know you've seen that space, you've been in that space for a while. Where do you see now? I, I mean, some of the research I've done, I know that looking at some of the numbers between now and 2030, AR is going to take a lot, a bulk of the investments when it comes to, which is what I've seen and dip with different numbers. Where do you Where do you think? Where do you think? Because from the stuff I've seen, uh, it says that VR and AR are, are going to be pretty close, and then AR is going to take a lot more. Well, AR can do more than VR, and it's also hard to make VR, and it's computationally expensive. So, yes, and again, AR may not require that you wear a headset, mm -hmm. so there will be more AR. 
AR certainly has a lot of industrial applications for, for training, for maintenance, remote experts, lots of, of things that, that, that AR can do for enterprises. And those certainly are uh, going to generate a lot of revenue. Yes. You know, as they create efficiencies. And those efficiencies are captured, just like self-driving. So it's sort of inevitable that we'll have self-driving trucks, and it's also inevitable that we will be able to do those things with augmented reality. Virtual reality is on a slightly different path. As we uh, were talking about earlier before uh, we started recording, telepresence, in my opinion, is probably the killer app. Because what do email and messaging, which were the killer apps of the PC in 1995, have you know in common with the mobile phone and in common with AR and VR? For AR and VR to hit that inflection point, it has to have bring people together. People are the killer app, right? So they're how, uh, wearing a head-mounted display, I think it's almost possible now to have virtual presence in a room. Microsoft has done some demos of that technology. Cisco and others are working on it. So it is going to be possible to do the things Microsoft says that you can do in their commercial that we can't do, but it actually may be possible to do them soon. The other thing is I had a chance to experience volumetric meetings which is amazing. You know, it's not like alt space, but it is my avatar shot in real time with a 3D camera integrated in a shared virtual space with somebody mm. else. And it really feels like a meeting because he's not a propeller head. He's a person. He has volume. He has presence. And it's extremely compelling. Mm. And um, so if we're looking at going towards the future and looking at the next, say, 10, 15 years, one particular thing you, you spoke about at the AR and action event, you said one thing really, really compelling, talking about the way you want to look at life and the way that you are in this space is from 10,000 feet out. Other than seeing a tree, like some of the different entrepreneurs, which is very true, um, on certain issues, you're able to see issues from 10,000 feet out. How, how did you get there, and how are you able to be able to take that step back and look at things like the future? Well, I don't have a dog in this fight. Right, so I just want to tell the story. So when I meet people, I'm not selling anything. I have no agenda. I have no bone to pick. So I get to talk to people. I get to talk to competitors. I get to hear people's different points of view. I get to try a lot of technology and equipment. And companies want to show me demos because they want me to write about um, about their their products. It is very very hard for companies to break through the clutter today. So. You know, there's an army of communications people yeah. trying to pitch stories to, to, to guys like you and me. Yeah. Um, so that's how I get that objective data collection. I read extensively online. I pay a lot of attention to Twitter and to LinkedIn. And I talk to many people every day. And I go to conferences and I listen to other people. What, what and, and it's all, to me, little pieces of a big puzzle. I'm not looking for a client. I'm not trying to get access to set up a meeting with him or with her. I'm just gathering information. I'm looking for a story that I can tell. And it's interesting. One of the interesting things about this business, it's, it's so new that we don't have an agreed-upon language. And it's so new, and the entrepreneurs generally so technical that they are the worst possible people to tell their own story. And the communications people that they hire, though extremely competent, are ultimately their captives because they are the client. So I think I add value to the people that I write about because I tell their stories better than they tell their stories. Mm. Um, so uh, you wanted to talk about storytelling and entertainment. Let's get back yes. to that. Uh, there has been a couple of metaphors for what interactive storytelling might be like. I mean, could it be like Westworld, right? That's my <laughs> fantasy, right, that I am in a virtual Western. It is a massive multiplayer environment, but the humans, human avatars are integrated with AI. And I don't, you don't know who's who. And that's an incredibly open-ended um, a social experiment that uh, obviously has fatal consequences yes. in a TV show, <laughs> but would be extremely interesting uh, 
to do in VR, but we are decades yeah. away from, from something like that. Although, as I said, it will happen. Yeah. There is no question. There's no question it will happen, but it's I doubt a priority for anybody right now. Again, yeah. the game guys maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it'll be a priority for them. Then there's the other thing that happened was uh, uh, the escape room. Right, the escape room as a model for what multiple people can do in VR. The good thing about the escape room is that everybody knows what to do there, and it forces collaboration with friends or with strangers, and it is a timed experience. So those lend themselves well to VR. Escape rooms in VR are uh, sort of a natural but it makes people who are VR storytellers say it is possible to tell a story. Yeah. Um, using that, there's a Paradiso, which is like in its second or third year here in New York, is a popular escape room, which is themed and has actors and is, is super elaborate. Most of the escape rooms are rather low-budget, handmade affairs. The other thing that has been happening is immersive theater, like Sleep No More, uh, which is in its sixth year in its own venue in Lower Manhattan, just... 10 blocks from here. And in it, the characters are acting out a Edwardian version of Macbeth in an old hotel. And you follow the characters. You literally jog after them. And then they stop and they interact. And you are, you're wearing a, a, a carnival mask, a Venetian carnival mask. <laughs> and you're following them around as a voyeur. In virtual reality, one of the key concepts that I keep coming back to is this concept of agency. So you have to know who you are in VR, you have to know what you're supposed to do, and you, um, you know, that's why movie franchises are so important in VR, because you know what to do. I'm in Star Wars, I know what to do, I know where I am, I know the mythos, I know everything about it. I'm Batman, I get it. You know, you instantly get it. That's the value of those franchises, and it's terribly important to ground you in VR, especially to get you to have a good experience right away. The more explaining is death in entertainment and in games. The more explaining, the worse off you're going to be. The, um, so uh, that is why, and so, and here's the other thing, and and this is really what, what kills 360 video for me. We learn before we even talk, a common visual language that was created by D.W. Griffith in about 1908, which can break things down into shots and manipulate time and space. So I look left, she looks right, we're looking at each other. I walk out of the right side of the screen and walk in on the left side of the screen, you know, in the next shot. Looks like the two spaces are connected. Um, so that is cinematic language, and the director determines your attitude toward every image with lighting and focal length and, you know, camera angle, and, you know, it's the director's attitude toward the subject and, you know, determines your emotions by lingering or quickly cutting away, though that is a language we all share in common. But with 360 video, all of that goes away. There is no director. You don't know what to look at. So I see a lot of 360 video, the New York Times stuff, but you know, lots of stuff that's supposed to be quote unquote an empathy machine and I kind of laugh because you could have made me feel a lot more if you had made a 2D documentary. Mm-hmm. Like seeing it in 360 doesn't really, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you may as well have taken a still picture and said, the, and here's a 360 still picture and I, I'm online and I just scroll around it. Why do I, why does it need to be? I don't get it. And so, but in a medium hungry for content, 360 video will do, but you have no agency. And without agency, you have no presence. Um, But that's what the Gear VR is. Essentially, it's a 360 video viewing machine with a bunch of arcade games built into it. And there are some good 360 videos. I'm not knocking them. Smart people have been making them for a while. But for me personally, man, I'd rather have a director direct something. 
So that's and you know, I mean, I'm an I'm an old fogey, and you know, there's it's a business of opinions. Yep. And again, I'm a columnist, not a reporter. So that happens to be my opinion. I think 360 video is going to happen, and 360 photography is going to happen. But it's going to happen. It's going to come from consumers who have little clip-ons for their phones, phones yeah. like they have other lenses, and the people who are into that will get them, and you know, they'll take them scuba diving or to the top of Mount Everest so that they can do what they're doing now only better. Yeah. It's better than taking a pano. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and where's the best place to take a 360 video? Underwater, Mount Everest. Yeah. You know, it's not like, you, you know, I see, you see, oh, it's a college football game at 360. I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, it's like the first shot. It's like, okay, oh, it's a stadium. Everybody's around me. And, and that's it because yeah. I have no agency. I'm like sitting in my seat. Everybody's around me. The guys out there in the field, they're, I can't even see them. And they're all pixelated. So it's worse than television, way worse. Yeah. Uh, you can't really see the game, so it's like all the worst things about being in the stands um, or being at a live, uh, a live event and none of the good things about it. So, you know, none of the hot dogs, none of the no, beer, no. none of the camaraderie, none of the reasons you would go to a stadium. So I see these things that the NFL and, and you know, the uh, NBA are doing, and I think, well, these are interesting experiments, but this is not, I mean... This doesn't take what I'm doing now and yeah. make it better. It takes what I'm doing now and makes it more complicated, expensive, and difficult. Mm. I mean, why would you use that to watch the NFL? Why, why, why would you pay to use that to watch an NFL, NBA game? Why wouldn't you get NBA ticket and you see yeah. the game in high definition and you don't have your head stuck in a box? So, um, so anyway, getting back to storytelling, I do think the reason I was so intrigued by what Penrose was doing is in place of those shots they give you presence and the characters in the world are like little marionettes yes. moving around and you can be close to them you can be far from them but there you can't affect them they're on a track and you're just following them around yeah um, but the fact that you can manipulate their size and and go in and out of the story does create an interesting relationship yeah. to the story and I think is a clue like sleep no more to what narrative storytelling may be in this new medium. The other thing I think has a terrible lot of potential, and it's an extension of what I talked about with tabletop AR being able to show you a soccer game or a football game. Tabletop AR, tabletop AR could also show you sleep no more. But you would have to you know, basically have uh, to be able to have volumetrically realistic characters moving and acting. And yes. that is not something that has been figured out yet. Uh, it will be next year, two years from now. Well, I don't know, 10 years from now? Yeah, probably, you know. But again, I, I would say people overestimate the present, but the view, the, the, the possibility is, is totally real. You know, it's totally happening. So I can totally see being at home and, and you know, you set up your phone and it projects the whole field out here for you. So that will happen. Yeah, and I, I know you, you met with Eugene Chung yeah, of Penrose, Penrose yeah. and uh, you went to that festival, and I know that. Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw Arden's Wake, which has not been released at Tribeca, and then I visited him in San Francisco, and I watched Alumet again, which I, I, uh, I, I really, really like it. It's a little that. slow moving yeah. um, when you do it the second or third time, but the first time I was utterly charmed and surprised by it, and I thought it was a Good story, well told, with a, a lot of good directoral choices, and it just made me feel like, oh, this is how storytelling is going to be in, mm. in, in VR. I you know, can I... see the beginnings of that, because he has replaced the cinematic language with scale. Right? So you can you know, make that action really small, or you can make it a super close-up. It's up to you. So you can, you have the agency to replace the director. Exactly. I don't think most people want to do that. I think most people probably stand there. That would be an interesting, uh, an, an interesting study. Of course, I moved all around it and wanted to see under it and over it and really see sure. how good the illusion was. But I think most people would be uh, interested in the story. And there's the dimensionality of it and your presence there is very right. unique and, and does offer a good clue. But it does, as I said, doesn't necessarily have to be VR. It can also be AR. So... Uh, there are clues out there, but again, nobody really knows what's going to happen. So it's, you know, you're kind of covering this great unfolding story in, in real time. Yeah, and I, I, know it's, uh, I know we're at the point now where 
Um, I, I mean, I don't know if you can speak on it or how much you can. Of do you know? I know everyone, at least in the space of VR, AR, we all know about Magic Leap. Yeah. Um, which you know they're talking about rolling out to their investors and all that right. other stuff coming up soon in either November or December. I saw yeah. something on coming up soon. So, where do you think? You know they're driving. What what kind of car do you think they're in? Well, they're How trying to do. They they're trying to do the wide field of view, light field technology AR. So one of the problems with AR is that characters need to be grounded in space. AR can solves that, but the characters have a blank focal length, right? So you can't put objects in front of them or behind them. You walk through them. But using light field technology, you're able to um, change the focal lengths, and therefore, someone could hide behind a, uh, you know, an avatar or a mm. digital creature, or you know, something could run or a car could run around on the floor and go under a couch, which AR kit does not do right now. So, there are many things that a light field enabled, wide field of view. AR offers, and uh, supposedly they're going to be like a pair of glasses. Yeah, exactly. What they are, they have a workaround for that. It's a developer version. So there are two little cameras stuck on the side of the glasses. It looks a little bit like the uh, OBGR8. And it has a cell phone sized graphics processor, which I think this version actually is wired to. And that is the way that it does AR. Mm. So I can't wait to see that. Yeah, They clearly do have miniaturization version issues. I think it's going to be like the HoloLens. It's a $3,000 thing. It doesn't have that many apps. Okay. Probably is going to be a little not, not finished. Yeah. And uh, they're going to be really hard to come by. Yeah. I think Magic League probably will be really picky about who gets them. And the, you know, it'll take another year for them to have that turn into something they can yeah. sell to consumers for a thousand dollars. So for listeners, I know I want to make sure I, I we we ask these questions as well. Say if they're you know they want to start a virtual reality company, they want to start an augmented reality company, uh, you know, where do where do they start? Uh, what conferences do they go to? What article should they read? I know yours, of course. Well, yeah, my there is an awful lot yeah. that you can find just by using the Google. Um, there, uh, I do not think there really are any good books. People don't want to write books because they're out of date the day you print the book. Uh, that is why my book is an e-book that is updated on a rolling basis. Um, so, I think the best course is to really use the Google. Okay. So you know, search. see, find the thought leaders. There is one book to read. It's Robert Scoble's and Shell Israel's Fourth Transformation. Of course. Ready Player One, which is a visionary, you know, treatise on what uh, social VR might look like, and and how important it potentially is, okay. because they talk in that book about this company that that uh, about this thing called the Oasis, which is sort of the place everybody wants to live, and so that company has is the most valuable company in the world, and the characters in it go inside of that world to compete you know, solving a puzzle in order to get, inherit that company. Mm. Uh, there are, you know, mega corporations and evil villains and all sorts of people who want to prevent the kids from getting the keys to the kingdom. It, it's a good story, well told, but the vision of virtual reality in the future, I'm talking about the book by Ernest Klein, the Steven Spielberg movie that's coming out, yeah. it may actually define VR and popular culture for some mm. time. Yeah. Uh, but the Ernest Klein book is wonderful and it is as much of a must-read and it is as thought-provoking as, as uh, Bob Scoble's book. What about some? What about conferences that people can maybe go to? That, you know, that uh, there are VR meetups in, over every, in almost every city. Again, Google is your friend here. Uh, there are some big ones. Uh, some are better than others for newbies to go to. Uh, and, and, you know, conferences are expensive. Even if you don't have to travel to them, conferences can cost thousands of dollars. And there's so much good recent content on YouTube. For example, AWE, within six weeks of the conference, had every talk up there. So 
if you are remote and you're interested, I think you can learn a lot just from uh, using Google and reading. Um, there are a lot of conferences. I mean, you can see everything in the world at CES, but it's a confusing mess. <laughs> you know, so there, there, you know, there are pluses and minuses to all the conferences, but the obstacle is that they're really expensive. They only cost $3,000. Yeah, because the companies pay. And, of course, I'm, as a writer, I don't pay anything. But I wouldn't be going to those conferences if I had to write that check. Yeah. There's no way. Um, so I think that's why the, the uh, VR meetups locally is a good way for people to meet each other, find other people interested in, in doing things with VR. The, um, you know, but I think it is... In people who are investing both their time and or their money, both entrepreneurs and investors, unless they have some important patentable technology, are going to have to be very deep-pocketed and patient. Um, is there a pot of gold out there? Absolutely. Is now the right moment? I have no idea. But the risks are higher now than they will be later. Yeah. The rewards are potentially greater because it's easier to establish a brand in a new marketplace, but the development of the medium is something you can't really control. Yeah. And no one knows when scale is going to be there. That's why the platform creators are paying for other people to make content. Yeah. Because the developers and the publishers can't make that money. There aren't enough installed units. So okay, so that I mean that makes a lot of sense, and you've gone into so much detail about virtual reality and augmented reality. I really do appreciate all the information and knowledge that you're giving to everybody. So I wanted to kind of um, make sure I finish up the questions and, and go through a quick round of questions, like always. Yeah. I always ask these questions, so sure. these are just going to be speed right. questions, <laughs> back to back. So right. first one is one thing in your life that needs to be completed by 2017. Book. <laughs> and two things that you can give to our people that are listening, whether it's um, a link or whether it's sure. Well, quotes, uh, whatever. Fo follow me at Charlie Fink on Twitter, uh, and you know I obviously relentlessly pimp my own writing there, but I do try and retweet uh, things that are interesting and happening in in VR and and be a, a source of of news and, and interesting articles. I, I almost put every interesting article I read, I, I either retweet or, so I try and be of service. Yeah. I think that's how you build up a Twitter following is that you are of service. Yeah. You are useful to other people. So it's not just my writing, but also just kind of a news feed, yeah. which is what Twitter does extremely well. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are a number of publications worth following, um, particularly on Twitter. Again, you don't have to go to the website every day because they're constantly promoting yeah. their articles. Um, Upload VR is one. Road to VR is another. VR Voice is another. Uh, there are, you know, a couple of others. They're not coming to mind immediately, but they're, you know, uh, organizations whose, whose articles I read all the time. I mean, there is a lot of, of news coverage uh, on Twitter and on these sort of blog websites, some of, some of which are really... And, and also on, on Medium, as you get to know yeah. who the players are, following them on Medium is also a, a good way to... Really good. Yeah, I mean, I, I pay attention to a lot a lot to my Medium Daily Digest. <laughs> Unfortunately, Medium is about to change because they're introducing uh, subscriptions and paid stories. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, Medium is in trouble. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I hope it works. Yeah. I, didn't, I, I didn't pay for it. Yeah. They tried to get me to write for it, but I'm not going to put up a, a paywall in front of my yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and and my pages are minuscule. I mean, it's like a, a popular article gets 15,000 views. I mean, yeah. no one at, uh, you know, $3 a thousand page views is going to make very much money on 15,000 views. Yeah. So there's no reason to put it behind a, a paywall and get a check for, you know, $46 uh, from, from Medium. Yeah. So... Uh, we'll see what happens with yeah. Medium. So uh, it, where can people find you at? I mean... Well, um, Medium, Medium, uh, medium.com backslash at Charlie Fink. 
Instagram, I, Facebook, maybe uh, Facebook. I you know, Facebook is really more of a personal thing for me. I don't okay. post a lot of business stuff on there. If you want to hear me ranting politically or <laughs> posting pictures of my children, feel free to reach out, to follow me on Facebook. But I don't think it's going to be as my my clutter in their newsfeed is probably not as as useful as as Twitter. I want to use. Uh, Instagram more. I think Instagram has more of a younger and more diverse following than mm-hmm. than Twitter may. Um, but you know, there and there, there are. I mean, there are just so many people on on Twitter. It's a yeah. really nice community. Uh, I have a lot of great interactions with people. And um, Twitter, like LinkedIn, is is you, you can find everybody there. Um, they don't always respond to you, but they do a lot more often than you think. <laughs> exactly. uh, and, you know, everybody has access in that way today. Yeah. And I would not be afraid. To, the worst they could do is not respond to you. And then you've, so you've, you've lost nothing. Uh, so, you know, those tools are the tools I use every day, and they have been democratized. democratized. They're available to everybody. So I would urge people to use that as a competitive weapon, and uh, to stay well read, uh, and if you can't get to or afford the conferences, the the videos are all online. And uh, you know, I think that this is a phase where the conferences are important because the information is so new and it's changing so quickly. So I wouldn't recommend regular people go to as many conferences as I go to, <laughs> uh, but I do think attending a couple of conferences a year can be very very helpful. It's just expensive and inconvenient, so you have to be very picky. Uh, and as I said, you look more toward the meetups and local people uh, who are interested in the things that you're interested in. And, you know, that's the way to find a partner. That's the way to get what venture capitalists call deal flow. Yeah. Um, you're not going to get deal flow from the internet. You're going to get it from meeting real people. But the internet is how you meet real people. Yeah. Um, you know, particularly if it's specialized like this. Yeah. I really appreciate your time. I mean, you've given so much knowledge. Thank you. My I, pleasure. I, I really I love talking it. about this stuff. <laughs> I bet you do. And hopefully, you know, we can get you on maybe not the second, maybe not the second season, maybe the third okay, season. Okay, I talk, hope you I We're talking so. about Magic I'm League. Looking forward we're talking to, about, you I'm know. looking forward to your fifth season. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you so right, much. Thanks, um, again, thank you so much.